and in God's Word. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. It's sweeter than honey in a honeycomb. It's purer than gold purified seven times in the furnace. Your Word is life. Your Word is strength to us. Uh, Your Word is alive and active. And so we pray, search us by your word this morning, instruct us by your word, build us up in the most holy faith, we pray. Uh, Help us to hold fast to your word and and not to forget it, not to leak it, not to have it choked out by the world and to guard it from the enemy trying to pluck it away from us. Help us to hold it and by your word be transformed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you have sort of parachuted into the middle of a series we've been doing as a church called Spirit-Filled Living. Let me give you just a little bit of the review up to this point. We began with a topical sermon on who is the Holy Spirit. There we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. He's a third person of the Trinity. He's a different person than the Father and the Son, and yet one God. And we talked in our second sermon about the one place in the Bible where we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. I think we saw in Ephesians 5 that that command isn't what people generally think of when they talk about being filled with the Spirit, but but that you in Ephesians 5 is plural, so it's something that happens to us together as a gathered church, and it happens as we genuinely worship the Lord uh, together as His people, Spirit lives in us, dwells in us, fills us in this powerful and unique way. So then we move to Romans chapter 8, and we've been walking through Romans chapter 8 thinking about what I've been sort of calling the deeper work of the Spirit. I think in our culture, in the church culture, we get caught up in lots of arguments about the Holy Spirit, particularly as it relates to supernatural and miraculous gifts. Do the gifts continue? Do they not? Or we get into an argument about whether or not speaking in tongues is necessary uh, to the Christian life. And so uh, if you speak in tongues, then, then you have the Spirit. If you don't, you have the Spirit. So there's a lot of bad teaching out there that keeps us stumbling and tripping over each other in argument. And I've been suggesting that actually those arguments relative to the ongoing work of the Spirit in the Christian life are superficial. That the Spirit's doing a deeper work in us. It's an everyday work, and it's a glorious work, and it's really probably what we ought to fix our minds on more intently than those other secondary arguments. So we came to Romans chapter 8, and right out the gate, Paul says, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. And the ability ability to live with a sense of no condemnation, but of acceptance and freedom before God, the Spirit produces that in us. And then we come down a little bit later, and Paul tells us, beginning around verse 5, that the Spirit gives us a new mindset. That if we are really in Christ and the Spirit is in us, our minds are not set on the things of the flesh, of the sin nature, of the body. Our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. And that pattern of thinking after the Spirit determines the pattern of our lives. But the Spirit's not done there. 
We come down to verses 9 to 11, and Paul is at pains to help us to understand that it is the Spirit who gives us life. Even though our bodies are dead because of sin, the Spirit at work in us because of righteousness is giving us life and will give life even to our mortal bodies. And so we come to verse 12, and Paul says again, Now, therefore, brothers, you don't belong to the realm of the flesh. You don't serve the flesh. You belong to the realm of the Spirit. You serve the Spirit. And he argues in verses 12 to 17 that as we serve the Spirit and follow the Spirit, something is about to happen, particularly as we suffer with Jesus. That in that suffering, there there will come also a replacement, and that is glory. And it's the mention of that word glory that opens Paul's mind up to the paragraph we're considering today, verses 18 to 25. And here's what I want us to consider as our main point as we think about these uh, several verses, and it's this, very simply, beloved, if you're a Christian, our future is infinitely better than our past or our present. Our, Our future is infinitely better than our past or our present. Now, I want to unpack that in four points. We see number one, point number one, suffering does not compare to glory. That's the thesis in verse 18. Suffering does not compare to glory. Number two, the creation, the entire cosmos, the entire universe, the creation waits to see and to share that glory with us. The creation is waiting to see and to share that glory, verses 19 to 21. Point number three, the creation and the Christian. In the meantime, we groan together until we have that glory, until we have that full redemption. And then number four, the Christian hopes and waits for that glory. The first two points are looking forward to the future. The second two points are focused on how we are to live now in light of that future. Romans chapter 8. Verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Point number one, suffering does not compare to glory. 
You see, verse 18 begins with that little word for. As we read through these several verses, you'll notice every couple of verses, you, you see that word again, for, for, for. Paul is driving deeper and deeper into his argument. Every time you see the word for, he's stepping deeper down into the truth, deeper down into the truth, deeper down into explanation. So verse 18 begins with four. So Paul is now explaining why he said what he said at the end of verse 17 when he says that we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In verse 17, Paul wrote about suffering like it was good news. Now, why would suffering with Jesus sound like good news to a Christian? Verse 18 gives us the reason. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. That's why Paul mentions suffering like it's good news. It's as if God has looked us dead in the eye and said straight to us, your present sufferings are not worth comparing with what I'm planning for you in the renewed creation. And right away, we're confronted with this truth in verse 18. And right away, we're confronted with the question of whether we're going to believe our pain or believe our God. He looks right at us and says, listen, your suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to you. I'm going to put this in a mathematical formula. You could put it this way. Present suffering is less than, you know the less than sign, you draw it like that, is less than future glory. But even that mathematical formula doesn't quite capture what he says in verse 18. What he says in verse 18 is, present suffering ain't even worthy to be compared to the glory. The present suffering is so infinitesimal that it don't even tip the scales when you put glory on the other side. It doesn't even stack up in a way that says, oh, I should think about this. He's saying, no, this is your present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that I'm going to reveal to you. Suffering does not compare to glory. The reward of the sight of God's glory, when it is revealed, will cause all our present pain, all our present suffering, all our present affliction to feel like nothing to us. Oh, suffering for Jesus may hurt now. He doesn't say it doesn't hurt. It may hurt now. The Bible doesn't deny suffering, but the Bible is putting suffering into a context, into the context of the coming glory of God. On the day of Christ, when we see his awesome beauty and majesty, we will, we will think of our pain in Jesus and say, man, that was nothing. See, putting suffering in context changes our outlook, doesn't it? That word in verse 18, consider, is really important. To consider means to stop and think about it. It's the New Testament, New Testament equivalent to Selah. Stop and meditate on it. 
Our challenge, beloved, is we so rarely stop and think about anything, don't we? We're so busy. We're moving so fast. And, 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 and we get caught focusing on our pain. And, and we don't stop to think of, of putting the pain in the context of the coming glory. But it's only when we do that that we reach the right conclusions. So when we listen to our pain as if our pain is the only context and the only future, that we reverse the formula. We write the formula present suffering greater than future glory. And that's when we lose heart. That's when we grow discouraged. That's when we're tempted to stop walking in faith and hope. So my question to you this morning, if you're here and you're struggling with hope because of some pain, some suffering for the name of Christ, are you putting that pain and that suffering in the context of the glory that's going to be revealed to us? Present suffering is not greater than future glory. The way to not lose heart or become discouraged in the Christian life is to view our affliction in the light of eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, Paul continues to write to other churches about um, this very thing. He, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he says something very similar to what we see in verse 18 in, in different words. He says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, it's very similar to what he says in verse 18 of Romans 8, but, but it's a little bit different. And the difference encourages me as much as almost any sentence in the Bible. Now, notice what he says. He says, your, your affliction, my affliction, by comparison, is light and momentary. But that ain't all he says. He says, your affliction is working for you. Your suffering is your servant. Your, your pain is your employee. Now, notice what he says. He says, your affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Next time suffering comes into your room, say, welcome, my servant. Prepare me some glory. such a beautiful sentence. Notice he says, it, it is producing for us an eternal as opposed to momentary, a weight as opposed to light, of glory as opposed to affliction beyond all comparison. Let me tell you how incomparably different suffering and glory are. You can describe your suffering with words but you can't describe glory with words. Mm, that's good. 
Some of y'all missed that. Right now, we have all kinds of words for suffering. We got trauma. We got pain. We got brokenness. We got affliction. We got, you get on my nerves. We got all kinds of words for suffering. But in the world to come, we won't need no words for suffering. There will be no pain. There will be no hurt. There will be no death. There will be no more crying, no more sickness, no more disease, no more loneliness, no more depression. Everything that bothers us belongs to the old order of things, the new will have come, unless those words will be obsolete, banned in glory, useless to the redeemed Christian. You won't even remember those words, not at least in any way that has any sting to it. There are words for suffering, but no words for glory. The whole universe just has to wait to see what we revealed in the sons of glory. Suffering does not compare to glory, beloved. We don't even have language to compare to. To, to think this way, to think the way Romans 8.18 and 2 Corinthians instructs us, we have to have our minds set on spiritual things. We have to have our minds freed from fleshly things. The pain we suffer in the body. The pain we suffer from heartbreak. The pain we suffer seeing a broken world destroying itself. That pain can be so immediate and so immense, it will make us forget heaven and glory and the Holy Spirit. The pain of the fallen world can come with such force that it can convince us that our pain is all that matters. Anybody ever hurt so bad you couldn't think about nothing else but how much it hurt? This is why we want to be careful with our pain. And we want to be careful with the language that describes our pain. Just by way of illustration, trauma. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll get trapped inside the trauma, reliving it over and over, rather than developing resilience to deal with it. A genuine trauma can take our eyes off of that great glory that is ours in Christ. I love the way Ray Ortland puts it very simply. Our problems cannot be allowed to eclipse our hope. Our problems cannot be allowed to eclipse our hope. <laughs> that means, beloved, we got good news for hurting people this morning. If your mind is set on the flesh, then it, it won't seem like good news to you. But if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, this news will give you life. The news is this. Your suffering, no matter how bad it is, and it can be bad, does not ultimately compare to the glory that you're going to see and receive through Jesus Christ. Present suffering is infinitely less than future glory. And your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. This is why the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, we should rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Amen. Anybody know how to laugh when they're hurting? That's a gift and a discipline that God will teach us by his spirit. Christian, are you happy to suffer with Jesus? Are you putting suffering in its proper context, in the light of glory? 
Because glory transforms our view of suffering because glory is so much greater. Now, it may be that you're still not convinced. And Paul wants to continue the argument. So you see the next four in verse 19. He's stepping down deeper in the argument now. He's telling us why he's just said what he said in verse 18. There's some truths that lie at a slightly deeper level that we need to see. And that's this. The creation wants to see and share the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19, the creation wants to see that glory. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Y'all, we're being revealed. Amen. We, 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 we are about to be shown to the world. We are becoming something new, something the universe has never seen before. Did you know that, Christian? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, another one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. Beloved, we are God's children now. That was Paul's argument in verses 12 to 17. We are right now God's children. And John says, and what we will be, future tense, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So it's not only a glory that's revealed to us. The moment we see it, it's a glory that, that, that sort of shines out of us. Yeah, We're being transformed. We're being made something new. The universe hasn't seen it. The creation is waiting to see it. Eagerly looking. Yeah. Wanting to get a glimpse of this glory. Yeah. And this glory includes, as I said, our transformation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 44. Paul writes there, so, it is, so, is, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about the resurrection and Jesus' rising and the transformation that comes with the resurrection. And then he gives these contrasts. He says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We're becoming something new. We are being transformed day by day, moment by moment. As glory approaches, we are changing, beloved. Yeah. And all of creation wants to see it. Some years back, I may be dating myself. I don't know if this comes on television anymore. Used to be a TV show called Extreme Makeover. The home edition. I remember that little guy, I forget his name, was the host. Yeah, y'all know who he is. Seemed like they go all over the country looking for people who just, I mean, broken. Dad is a veteran of some war, for example, and he's come back and, and, and he, he's not coping really well with life. Maybe he's lost a limb or something. Mom was the only provider, but then she got some devastating disease, and she can't work anymore. They got 17 kids, and they all got rare diseases. I mean, one, one kid allergic to oxygen, the other kid allergic to grass, and I mean, it's just rough. It's just rough, right? You, you watch this, you'd be like, hey, I'm serious. You used to watch this show, you'd be like, my life ain't that bad. And they, they go on a, they, and they always in a little house that don't meet their needs, right? And so they're going to do an extreme makeover of the house. They send the family off to Disney World somewhere. And uh, for a week, the whole town comes. They tear down the old house. They build this new house with unusual kind of oxygen and no grass and all, all the stuff the family needs, right? And then, you know, at the end of the show, the family comes back. And, and they pull up, and they put the family out the car behind the bus, 
so they can't see the house. And they talk with the family about the vacation and all that good stuff. And sooner or later, they tell the crowd, and all the crowd in the family shouts, move that bus. <laughs> Say it again. Y'all like that. Move that bus. <laughs> Beloved. The whole universe is looking at the wrecks that we were. The folks who were broken, so broken in sin. Unworthy of heaven. Unworthy of glory. And the whole universe is saying, move that bus so that the sons of God might be revealed and and the glory of God might be seen. The whole creation wants to see you and me transform into what God is making us to be. And not only that, the creation wants to see it. The creation wants to share it, too. Look at verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We got that word for again. Paul keeps going deeper down into the argument. He keeps pressing into the reason for verse 18. Now the reason is the creation wants to be set free too. The creation wants to participate in the glory for which it was made. There's been a problem. The creation was subjected to futility. Futility means powerlessness, emptiness, ineffectiveness, unfruitfulness. The creation doesn't reach its potential. The world we live in is not the world as God made it originally. This world is broken. This world is fallen. This world is corrupted. Paul says it's in bondage to decay. It's in bondage to corruption. But notice now, Not because the world wanted to be. Not because the creation wanted it to be. He says, not willingly. You realize that dirt and trees and birds and bears obeyed God better than man did? Was doing what it was made to do. And along comes Adam and Eve. And they disobey God. We might refer back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Because of their sin, God cursed the earth. To Adam, he said, Genesis 3, 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. Adam's sin plunged the entire creation into futility. But God had a plan. God always has a plan. The text says in Romans 8, God subjected the universe to futility in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, God plunged the universe into creation, uh, into ruin, excuse me, with Adam and Eve because he planned to redeem the creation through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The gospel not only renews human beings, the gospel renews the cosmos itself. Renews the universe itself. 
the creation is waiting for the redemption of the children of God to be finalized so that the creation can take place, take part in that redemption too. Creation watches for glory to see it, but also to share it. I'll put this very simply. This means everything broken in the world, beloved, will be fixed. Every crooked place made straight. Every wound healed. Everything that's broken in the world will be fixed and glorified together with us when God's glory is revealed. And our redemption is the universe's redemption. It won't be an avenger that saves the universe. It will be Jesus, the Lord of lords and King of kings. That's all we're looking forward to, is the renewal of all things made perfect. We're looking forward to that day when we are not held back any longer by this flesh, by this mortal coil. And the creation itself is looking forward to the day when God says, take your hands out your pocket and praise me the way I made you to. It's been subjected for a while. God said, no, don't praise me yet. Don't declare my glory quite as clearly yet. You hold back. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got some people I'm going to redeem. And when I reveal my redemption fully in them, then the creation, you can clap and praise God and bring him glory. Beloved, maybe the thing to hold on to here pastorally is that whatever's happening in life now is not the end. It won't last always. Glory is coming. And if you're in Christ, you have a full share of it as an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. But now there are some things we need to think about in the meantime. Our second two points focus on now. So our third point is this, the creation and the Christian. Right now, we groan for redemption. Verses 22 and 23. Verses 18 to 21 tell us what to expect in the future. Now we're thinking about how we're to live now in verses 22 to 25. And in verses 22 and 23, we see that both the creation and the Christian groan. Look with me at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 22 tells us the creation groans. Notice Paul starts there with the words, for we know. So what follows is supposed to be common knowledge to Christians. Paul writes as if everyone knows and and understands this, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. In other words, every Christian should know that the world is broken and fallen, and few things could be more dangerous to the Christian than thinking and acting as if the world's not broken. Few things could create more devastating consequence than acting like you can be a friend with the world. creation's in pain. Specifically, it's in the pains of childbirth. Right up to this very moment, the text says, 
It's been a long labor since Adam and Eve. It's groaning in childbirth. I've seen childbirth. I know many of you have seen it too. With our first child, Christy was in labor 15 hours. She always corrects me on this. 15 hours? Close enough? I think every year the hour goes up. It's like we're up to like 18 hours now. She was in labor a long time. And it was a tough labor. It was a lot of pain. Uh, so much so that, um, you know, going into that pregnancy, I was like, I want 10 kids. Or I want a big family. And she was like, maybe two. And we had fear. And, and I, the first thing I said to her, we held that beautiful little baby girl. I looked at her. I said, um, baby, if you don't want to have no more children, I completely understand. <laughs> the pain was real. Before we were out of the hospital, Christy was like, talking about the next one. That was crazy to me. <laughs> then we had Eden. Christy was in labor a much shorter time, but the, but the pain came so fast and so bad that she, she couldn't get an epidural. She couldn't get the medicines that she wanted, and she was literally shouting in the hospital, where the drug man? Where the drug man? <laughs> I, said, I said, baby, they gonna think you on crack or something. You need to chill out. And, and she wouldn't listen to me. She just kept shouting, where the drug man? Where the drug man? He ain't got here yet. He ain't got here yet. It was so bad, the doctor came up to her and, and firmly but gently put her hands on her face and held her face and said, listen to me. Look at me. You have got to stop screaming because you're scaring everybody in the hospital. That's a true story. That's a true story. That's a true story. Childbirth hurts. <laughs> Birth pangs are painful. But now here's what we want to observe in this text. We want to observe in this text. There is a dramatic difference between the pangs of childbirth and the pangs of death. These are not the pains of a life taking its last breath. These are the pains of life coming into the world. The universe is in labor. It's struggling. It's having childbirth pains, but it is pushing out life. It is pushing out redemption. It is pushing out renewal. It is pushing out the new creation that God has worked in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. These are the pains that we go through in order to see this new birth. Creation is pregnant. It's giving birth to new life and it groans, but not just, the universe, not just the universe. Notice now, the Christian groans too, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we Christians groan right along with the creation. Notice what Paul says there. Now, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now we come to the sort of theme of this series. And you'll notice every paragraph, almost every other line, Paul makes reference to the Holy Spirit. So we've come now to the deep work of the Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, the first fruits in the Old Testament is often used of the, the very first parts of the, of the sort of crops that are sown and reaped at harvest time. In the New Testament, this term first fruits is more often used in association with Jesus, and in particular with Jesus' resurrection. He's the first fruit from the dead, the first fruit of the resurrection. We are the greater harvest. 
But now that term is applied to the Holy Spirit. He is the, the first fruits or the first fruits of the Spirit, which can mean one of three things. Number one, it means we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and in some sense, there is more of the Spirit to experience on a day of redemption. Number two, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, who is a, a blessing from God and is the first part of a larger blessing that we are to experience on a day of redemption. Or number three, maybe Paul is using first fruits here in a way that parallels with what he says in Ephesians 1.13 and a couple of other places, that the Spirit is the seal of our salvation. He's the guarantor, the guarantee that we will be saved on the day of redemption. Um, choose one, choose them all, but right now, notice what the Holy Spirit does in us. The Spirit causes us to groan inwardly. Deep in our soul, the Holy Spirit is doing his deep work. He's causing us in the deepest parts of ourselves to eagerly long for and wait for the full adoption to be finalized and the redemption of our bodies. Ray Olin Jr. puts it this way. I like this. It's helpful. When your heart is aching to be rid of sin and frailty, that is not because your Christian life isn't working, but because it is working. Holy restlessness argues life. It argues the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. In other words, beloved, if, if you are groaning and moaning and tired and aching and hurting because of the, the, the travail of the world, because of the fallenness of the world, because of the brokenness of your own life, there's something, better yet, there's someone deep down in your soul doing that moaning, doing that groaning creating in us this longing, this cry, this desire, not just to be in a world that's bound to corruption, but to be free to participate in a world that shares the glory of God. Let me put it this way. Don't you know you would not even long for heaven if you didn't have the Holy Spirit? Ain't nothing in our flesh that's desiring the things of God. Ain't nothing in our flesh that loves glory the way it ought to love glory. There's nothing in our flesh that really longs to be in the presence of Christ and in the presence of the Father. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't even long for heaven the way we ought. So when you groan and when you moan and when you feel those blues in your soul, you need to know that the one singing those blues is the Holy Spirit. And it's evidence that your faith is, in fact, working because we're made for another world. We're made for glory. We're made to be with God. Paul has mentioned the fact that we have already received the spirit of adoption in verse 15. Uh, the Holy Spirit of adoption causes us to cry, Abba, Father, we truly are adopted already. But then there's a not yet aspect of it. The whole Bible has that tension that some things are done already in part, but, but other parts of it, the fullness of it, are, are not yet. Paul says you're already adopted and receive the spirit of adoption in verse 15. Now he's saying over here, but there's a not yet. Your bodies have not yet been redeemed. 
You've not yet been given a glorified body that will work in that glorified reality. When that body is transformed and joined together with your soul, then your adoption will be finally and fully complete. That's why we groan. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. This is a theme that's often in Paul's mind. He writes there, For we know that if the tent that is our home is destroyed, he's referring to our body as a tent, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, there's our word again, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In verse 5, he who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Groaning and preparation for immortality and a glorified body. That's God's work in us through His Spirit. And beloved, groaning is something then we should actually enjoy. And we should sometimes sit in. We should mourn and lament the brokenness in the world the brokenness in our lives. Not as those who mourn and lament because they're on some self-improvement project. They just want to get something a little bit better. And we want to mourn and lament as those who realize this ain't our home. This ain't glory. God has prepared a glory for us that we will see revealed to us and in us. And so the question becomes, beloved, Do you long for heaven? Do you? Do you long, do you yearn to put off this body of death and be clothed with immortality? To be clothed with immortality in an always living body of life? Do you sense the groan inwardly? That's the work of the Spirit, and every Christian should listen for it and hear it and cultivate it. If you don't have this this groan in you, then one of two things are true. Either you're not yet a Christian, or you're far too comfortable in this world. If you don't have this longing for complete and full redemption, then I would suggest you go back to verse 18. And really consider that this present world with with all of its sufferings that cause us to groan are not worthy to even be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. How's your groaning? This brings us to our final point. While we wait on that glory, while that glory is coming, the Christian hopes and waits. Verses 24 and 25 For in this hope you were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's the hope of redemption. 
body and soul, and hope of being brought into a transformed universe that saved us. It's the hope not just in the personal dimensions of the gospel, but in the cosmic dimensions of the gospel. That's our fuller expression of hope. Our hope is a close cousin to faith. Hope is a confident expectation of unseen realities. Notice how Paul puts it. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In other words, if if you already have the thing in your hand, then you don't really need hope. You, You already have it. Nobody hopes for what they have. But when it comes to the fulfillment of all God's promises, there are some things we don't yet see. That's part of the the not yet of our salvation. We don't yet see all things put under Christ's feet. We don't yet see Christ's full glory. We don't yet see the transformation of the universe and and of our bodies. There is a, a not yet that we're longing for and we must hope for it. Bible says we must notice, wait for it with patience. Well, you may have a translation that says endurance. I know we don't like the word wait. Not from the time we were little kids. We don't, we don't like the term, the term wait. My little small town, they used to be a little saying, you tell somebody to wait, they say something like, wait what broke the wagon down. <laughs> we don't like to wait. We live in a world of instant gratification. But God ain't concerned to carry out his salvation on the world's timetable. God ain't concerned to have us cracking the whip, clicking the clock, checking up on him. That's why he tells us one day with him is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day, so wait. Sit still. Know that he's God. Keep enduring patiently, looking for the coming of God's promise. Now, beloved, I think that's actually a difficult spiritual exercise. I think actually waiting is one of the hardest things we do in the Christian life. And the more we want the thing, the more we long for it, the harder it is to wait. There's an inverse relationship between waiting and longing. If you ain't longing for it, you don't care how long it takes. If you really want it, you're dying for it every second. And so this waiting is hard on the flesh. But that's actually the main application of this text. Wait patiently for the glory. And the implication is, oh, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be more than worth it. Nothing we have or nothing we suffer is even worthy to be compared to it. We have to be careful of two things until Jesus comes if we're Christians. Number one, we have to be careful of hopelessness. We have to watch out for those voices and ideas and movements that would rob us of the hope of God's promise. You realize that in academic institutions and in, in, in the thinking of many public intellectuals, um, Hopelessness has a kind of credibility, and faith is seen as delusional or dumb. This is why as Christians, we should never be caught up in looking for academic credibility. We should never be caught up in looking for the sort of plaudits and applause of a secular world that has no hope. 
As Paul says in Ephesians, they are without God and without hope in the world. Beloved, our our richest currency is hope. And we don't want to be drawn away to hopelessness. Do not believe them when they tell you to give up on God, to give up on his promises, to doubt his character. Let God be true and every man a liar. Hope in God. Watch for hopelessness. Second thing is, we have to be careful of false hopes. Hopelessness on one side, false hopes on the other side. There are a lot of voices in the world that tell us to hope in everything but God. Even in the name of God, they tell us in hope in things that ain't God. Or they try, like the prosperity gospel, to get you to hope in things that God never promised in this life. God promised us a redeemed and glorified body when Jesus returns. He did not promise that he would heal us of everything in this life. And so we struggle with pain and suffering and disease. Paul doesn't say here, listen, your sufferings are not worthy to be compared to glory, um, so pray to God to remove your suffering. That's not there in the text. He says your suffering is real, your glory is better, and he's encouraging us not to give in to false hopes. Christian hope wants God above all things. Christian hope realizes that the purpose of God's transformations of the world and of the Christian, the purpose of that is that so that we would be able to enjoy God forever. We need a glorified body to enjoy a glorified God. We need an eternal body to enjoy an eternal life with God. The other things God gives us are wonderful, but none of them compare to God himself. So Christian hope is longing for God and being fit to enjoy God. That's our ultimate delight. And that's why suffering can't compare. You're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I want you to know that genuine hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the, and in the promises that he makes, hope in God still saves You see what Paul said there uh, at the beginning of those last couple of verses, verse 24. The apostle writes there that that this hope is what saved us. And this hope is what will save you. And you ask, save me from what? Save you from God. Save you from God in his righteous anger against you because of your sin. Save you from God who has prepared an eternal hell for those who rebel against him. You desperately need to be saved from a righteous God. But the only way to be saved from this God is to be brought to this God. To be brought to him not as a rebel, but to be brought to him as one who has quit their love affair with sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ who was crucified for our sins and raised from the grave three days later, who not only will renew you, but as we've been seeing, renew the entire universe. It is to have that hope that will save you. So if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, put your hope in Jesus. Trust in him. Believe in him. He will never disappoint you. You will never be turned away Not if your hope is him 
and not if your hope is to be with him in his glory. He will keep you. He will love you. He will transform you. And on that day, when he moves that bus, his glory will be seen in you. Hope in God. Christian, keep hoping. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have prepared for us. And we thank you for the first fruits of this great glory, the gift of your Spirit, who dwells in us and testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God and who groans inside of us, who, who moans to let us know that this world is not our home, that you have prepared for us a, an exceeding glory, and nothing in this world from its blessings to its bruises is worthy to be compared. So Lord, we pray, help us to set our hope fully on that day when Jesus shall come and all of our longings will be satisfied and the universe will reflect your glory as it was meant to do. Help us to hope in you and to wait patiently, to endure, to do so with hope. Give saving hope to someone this morning and give sustaining hope to all of us who trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you, brother. Our final two songs seem so fitting for a world that's hopeless, for people with hope. Uh, the first song was written by a man who lost his family as they were crossing the sea from America back to England. He'd already lost his fortune in a great calamity. And while his family was sailing ahead of him back to the UK, the ship they were on crashed and sank. And his wife and his daughters died. And later, as he was traveling across the ocean back to the UK, the, the captain pointed out to him where the ship had crashed and sunk. And he penned these words. It is well with my soul. And the reason it's well with our soul is because of what we sing in the second song on page nine, the everlasting. That's what we're going to. That's who we're worshiping, the everlasting. That's the quality of our life right now. If we're Christians, we have everlasting life, never-ending life. Even if we die, yet we shall live because of the life that's in us by God's Spirit. So let's rejoice as those with hope in an unchangeable, unshakable, immovable God who's given us a, an inheritance that is kept undefiled and incorruptible, shielded by faith through his power. Let's rise and let's worship him as he deserves.